Here's the least shocking comment you ever hear in your life. Uh, we live in a world characterized by conflict. It's not an understatement to say that we live in a culture of conflict. Uh, the major news channels, the MSNBCs, the CNNs of the world, the Fox News channels, or whatever else you want to put in there, uh, they couldn't exist apart from the conflict. That's what they promote is conflict. They bring in the opposing sides and they want to shout at each other. But the church is not to be a place of conflict. The church should be different from the culture. The church should be a place where we support one another, a place where we encourage one another, and a place where we spur each other towards Christ-likeness. The church should be a place where we love one another, and the expression of our love for one another is that we hold each other accountable. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul teaches us that as believers, we are to restore those who have been overtaken by sin, and he also teaches us that we are to bear one another's burdens. Now listen to how he puts it. He says, brothers, brothers. I'm going to say that word brothers several times today. Here's what I want you to focus on, particularly here and in some other passages. When he says brothers, he does not have the leadership of the church in mind solely. He has both the leadership of the church and the membership of the church in mind. So he's addressing the entire body of Christ. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are part of the body of Christ... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And I want to emphasize this. I'm going to emphasize this several times today. You'll probably be sick of hearing it by the time you get out of here. But he is, the, these words were given to the entire church, not just to the leadership of the church, not really even to a subset of super saints in the church. They are given to the entire body of Christ. You know, the church is one of the means that God uses to safeguard us as Christians. The church body is given to admonish the unruly. The church is given to encourage the faint-hearted. The church is to help the weak. And the church family is to be patient with everyone. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And we urge you, brothers, the entire church, these are exhortations to the entire church, we urge you, brothers, to do what? Admonish the idol. You know, I, I understand why this happens, but people will say, will come up and say, you know, so-and-so has not been here a while. What's going on? And out of kindness, I'll share what I can share. But there are many times I would like to say, I don't know. Have you contacted them? Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. And I ask myself this question, why doesn't this seem to consistently happen in the church? Well, for the, in order for the church to... 
operate as the church, if I can put it that way, in order for the church to provide the protection and the benefits that God intends for the church to provide, the church must operate in an atmosphere of unity. Dissension and conflict in the church has sent many a church to an early grave. All their doors may still be open, but they're no better than dead. There's no life there. And when the church is unified, you know what happens? It can direct all of its attention to being the church. It can direct all of its attention to admonishing the unruly. The church will have the energy to encourage the faint-hearted. The church will have the ability to focus on helping the weak and to be patient with everyone. But when there is dissension and disagreement in the church, guess what? That energy and focus that is meant to be used to build up the saints for the church to be the church has to be redirected to deal with this disagreement and dissension that takes place in the church. Therefore, any threat to the unity of the church uh, must be dealt with in order to keep the church, i.e. the members of the church and the testimony of the church from being tarnished. And any threat to the unity of the church must be dealt with in order to keep the church functioning according to God's design and to achieve God's purpose. So we know from our study of this book that the church at Philippi was battling persecution from without. But there was an even greater danger that was facing the church, and that greater danger actually lie, lay inside the church. The unity of the church was being threatened from inside the church. There were two ladies, Paul names them by name, Eodi and Syntyche, who were embroiled in a dispute. They were embroiled in a disagreement. And it was a dispute that obviously had to be dealt with. I wonder if you've thought about this. Why did it take so long for this thing to, left to go unchecked, if you will, so that Paul, a man in prison, had to deal with it? Now, it's important for us to understand that these two members of the church, Iodi and Syntyche, there's no hint that they had the reputation of being troublemakers in the church. In fact, Paul describes them just the opposite way. He, de he identifies them as godly associates who labored side by side with him in the gospel, who labored side by side with him in doing the work of the ministry. Now, the reason I point that out is because I want you to understand just how easily it is for even the best church members to get embroiled in some kind of conflict, to engage in some kind of disagreement and some, have some kind of dissension among them. So there was this divisive situation in the church, but it was also a conspicuous division. So we have two factors in play. Number one is the division. Number two is it's visibility. We might even say that this was a, a high-profile problem in the church. And it was a problem that for the sake of the church and for the glory of God, it had to be dealt with. Now, perhaps you've been wondering, like I have been, why did Paul publicly name these ladies? I mean, you do that today, and holy smoke, 
You'd set the internet on fire, wouldn't you? Do you know what that preacher said? Well, the reality is, in the day and age that Paul lived, it was considered the cultural norm to identify people who were having problems. So if Paul had not publicly named these ladies, it would have been an insult. They would have thought that Paul was being harsh and unloving and he was keeping them at arm's length and that he was being cold and distant. So by naming them, he is actually showing them that he respects them, that he loves them, and that he appreciates the friendship that they have shared. Now, Paul deals with this situation, obviously in a very wise way, but you know, his wisdom is shown in the fact that he doesn't take sides in the dispute, does he? He doesn't say, well, Iodia, I think you're right, and Syntyche, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. No, he doesn't take sides, does he? He's not there to take sides. His concern was for the unity of the church and the glory of God. His concern was for God's integrity to be upheld. He was not a spiritual referee deciding who was right and who was wrong in this situation. And as we learned last week, this was probably a problem born of personal preferences. So his goal was not to convince either of these ladies to change their preferences. Again, it was a matter that one lady preferred one thing, another lady preferred another. Iodia preferred vanilla ice cream, Syntyche preferred chocolate ice cream, or vanilla, whatever, I confused myself. It was just the fact that they differed on something. And here's the lesson, and I know this is strange, and I'll address the young people directly. There was a time in our world when you could agree to disagree, and it was okay. You can agree to disagree and still maintain unity. You can agree to disagree and still remain friends. Now, Paul... I want to show you something here. He's been headed to this destination, if you will, throughout the letter. And we can summarize the problem. Now, Paul doesn't mention the problem because the actual problem or what the dispute was really wasn't all that important. The real problem was that they were not of the same mind. They were not like-minded. And this was something that Paul has addressed in every chapter of the book of Philippians. So what I'd like us to do is just do a little Bible study here this morning. And I want to take you through chapter 1, 2, and 3 very quickly, I promise, and show you how Paul has been instructing them in the necessity of being like-minded, of having the same mind. And it starts in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. So if you'd flip back there with me, I'd appreciate it. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Paul writes to them, remember this is the opening chapter, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So he's going to describe what a life worthy of the manner of Christ is, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, 
I may hear of you that you are standing firm in, now notice, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, that from God. So Paul addresses them as citizens of heaven. And because they are citizens of heaven, they must live as citizens of heaven. That's his point. That's what he means when he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's saying, you're believers, you're in Christ, therefore you should live like it. So the question is, how should we as citizens of heaven live? Well, first of all, notice that he says, as citizens of heaven, we should be standing firm. Now, where else have we heard that term? Well, right here in chapter 4, verse 1. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, again, there's that important word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. But let's go back to chapter 1 and notice how they are to stand firm. They're to be standing firm in one spirit, that's unity, and they're to be standing firm in one mind. Again, that is unity. So when we stand firm, it's a collective standing firm. It's not an individual standing firm. We are to be unified in our standing firm. So as citizens of heaven, we are to be standing firm in one spirit and in one mind. In other words, we are to live in unity. And then Paul goes on to say there, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Where do we see that? Well, right here in chapter 4, verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. So as he opens his letter, he immediately introduces this subject of the necessity for the church to live in unity, to be unified with one another. Say, well, what about chapter 2? I'm glad you asked. Look at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. How, Paul? By being of the what? Same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now he expands what that means. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his, to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I wonder when whoever was reading the letter publicly read this out loud, I wonder if Eodity and Eodia and Syntyche began to squirm. Because they weren't acting this way, were they? So Paul says to them, complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. So for a second time, he calls them to be like-minded. He calls them to live in unity with one another. And then he closes verse 5 by saying, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, you have this mind. You can't plead ignorance here. You know what it is, and you know what to do with it. You know how to apply it. You know you just need to exercise the knowledge that you have. 
Well, what about chapter 3? Does he address the subject in chapter 3? Yes, he does. Look at verses 14 and 15 in chapter 3. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now this must have, man, this must have really driven a stake through somebody's heart. Let those of you who are mature think this way. Ouch. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. When I read that when Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way, I think what he's saying there is mature Christians of all Christians should be unified. So therefore we could say there are times, not always, but there are times when dissension and disagreement are symptomatic and signs of spiritual immaturity. Not always, but that certainly is a factor to be considered. So, again, he is calling them to be like-minded. He is calling them to think the same thing. Well, the question is how? How could these two church members, who at once were in complete agreement, there was no dissension, how could they once again begin to think the same way, to be of the same mind? Well, there's only one way. And he said it already in verse 2. They need to agree in the Lord. Don't miss what Paul's doing here. Paul is directing their attention away from the minor agreement that they were having, and he wants them to shift their attention to the major points of agreement they shared because they were in Christ. I picture in my mind, if you're a parent, you've done this. You've snapped your fingers. Hey, hey, look at me, look at me, look here, look here. And I think that's what Paul's doing metaphorically. He's saying, hey, don't look over there. Look here. Uh, huh? I want you to take your eyes off of this disagreement, and I want you to fix your eyes, fix your focus back on these major points of agreement that you have because you are in Christ. Paul reminds them that they are part of God's eternal purposes. They needed to be reminded that there is so much more at stake than their personal preferences. Can I say that again? Listen, when you became a part of God's family, you're supposed to check your personal interests at the door. And if you can't, you got a problem. And if you won't, you'll create problems. Check your personal interests at the door because you now live for a much larger and greater purpose. I am not afflicted by what people think of me. There's one person that I care about, their opinion, and that's God's. You can call me dirty, rotten dog. You can run me down the road. You can run me over the hill. You can run over me with your car. Your opinion of me does not affect God's opinion of me. And I live for his approval. I live to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I hope you do too. 
That's what they needed to remember. Hey, check your personal interest at the door. You live for something much greater. They need to be reminded of all the points of agreement they shared because they were in Christ. They served the same Lord. They had been saved by believing the same gospel. They shared the same purpose. They shared the same identity. They both possessed the Holy Spirit. They were both members of the same church. They were both members of the body of Christ. And surely those blessings were far greater than any minor disagreement they may have had. And the reality was that they had so much more to agree about than they had to disagree about. So Paul tries to change their focus to help them take their eyes off of the minor disagreement and put them back on the majority of things that they could and did agree on. You know, in those times, when we find ourselves in a situation of disagreeing with a brother or sister in Christ, we must immediately pivot away from the point of disagreement and focus on all that we have in common with Christ. Okay? To agree in the Lord is to think the same thing in the Lord. To agree in the Lord is to be like-minded in the Lord. Look at Philippians 2.20. Paul says, Complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Jesus is calling us to demonstrate the same mind of Christ, which was what? Jesus always displayed a lowly and a humble mind, a mind that put the needs and the interests of others first. Paul understood if they were right with the Lord, they would without fail be right with each other. Can I say that again? It is not possible to be right with God, right with Christ, and be at odds with another brother or sister in Christ. You say, I don't think I like it. Tough. Let's think it through. Repeatedly, just, let's just take for the evidence right here in Philippians. Repeatedly, we see that Paul is calling us as Christians to be like-minded, to have the same mind, to exercise the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. But when we fail to do that, what are we, what are we, how does that describe us? We're not right with the Lord when we do not exercise that same mind, when we won't demonstrate the mind of Christ, correct? So in essence, we're being disobedient to what those scriptures tell us to do. You're not right with God. And if you're not right with God, and you can't be, you can't be out of source with another and be right with God. Could that be why there's so much weakness in churches today? There's so many people that are at odds with one another. They haven't spoken to one another in years or decades. Could it be? These two ladies, now here's what I really want to zero in on for the rest of my time. These two ladies needed help in order to agree in the Lord. Look at verse 3 again. Paul says, yes, I ask you also, true companion... Say, who's a true companion? Don't know. It's not important. Paul didn't name them. 
But there was somebody there. Help these women. What do you want me to do? I want you to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, apparently, there were those in the church who knew of this situation. It was public. Paul names it. They knew of this situation, but they chose to ignore it. They chose to look the other way. Perhaps they thought if they closed their eyes and didn't think about it, it would go away. But it didn't. And by the way that Paul phrases his appeal here, it appears that those who should have helped these two ladies, those who should have been able to solve the disagreement between these two ladies, chose to ignore it. And Paul understood that dissension left to itself rarely, if ever, goes away. Dissension left unchecked when it exists in the church, the greater the danger it presents to the church. Can I say that again? The longer dissension exists in the church, the greater the danger it presents to the church. Therefore, Paul calls both the leadership and the membership of the church to get involved in the situation. Now, if you would in some way, shape, or form uh, highlight the word help in verse 3, that word help is an important, it's a key word really in verse 3. That word has to do with active participation. It's a word that has to do with hands-on assistance. It's a word that has to do with how we as the members of the body of Christ are to serve each other. Literally, it's hands-on work. Not detached, not looking the other way, not ignoring the situation, but hands-on. So Paul was calling both the leadership of the church and the membership of the church to do the work of the ministry. In other words, to get their hands dirty doing the work of the ministry. What he's doing here is he's calling the body to take care of the body. He is calling the entire church to be the church, not in theory, but in practice. It's easy to be the church in theory, amen? But when you've got to get down in the muck and the mire and get your hands dirty, it's not so easy. Now, there's a very important principle here. Here it is. The God-ordained and God-appointed leadership of the church do not have to solve all the problems in the church without any aid from the membership of the church. You see that? Does that make you feel uncomfortable? There are times when the members of the church, the members of the body, out of concern for the individual members of the church, the individual parts of the body, you must be involved in taking care of the people problems that arise in church. Now, notice how I said that, people problems, not problem people. 
All people have problems. In the New Testament, repeatedly, I'm going to show you this, the New Testament repeatedly issues the call not just to the leadership of the church, but the entirety of the church to be hands-on in helping those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me say it this way. You do not have to have the title of pastor or elder in order to pastor God's people. Can I say that again? You do not have to have the title of pastor, shepherd, or elder in order to pastor the people of God. That is a misnomer. Ben quoted me a verse just, I think it was First Peter, shepherd the flock of God among you. Are you among the flock of God? Each one of us is to care for each other. Say, well, what do you get paid for? Well, it is my responsibility to equip you to do the work of the ministry. It's the job of the elders, the pastors, to equip you, to show you how to get your hands dirty. And to let you get your hands dirty. Now, let me give you some, uh, take you to three places in Scripture to bolster my point here. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to turn there quickly, if not, I'll read it to you. It's close by, just a couple of pages. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11, 12, and 13. Paul again writing, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, what's the work of ministry? For building up the body of Christ. Well, how long do we have to work? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, each week when I preach, my preaching should be in such a way that you are being equipped for the work of the ministry. So... What is the work of the ministry? Glad you asked. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verses 12, 13, and 14. Now in this passage, Paul addresses both the leadership of the church as well as the membership of the church. The first time he mentions brothers, he's referring to the leadership of the church. The second time he's referring to the membership of the church. So let's run through this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14, we ask you, brothers, that's the leadership of the church, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, notice this. Be at peace among yourselves. What is that? That's a call to unity. And we urge you, brothers, second occurrence, who are the brothers here? It's you all. It's the membership of the church. And we urge, we urge you, brothers, to do what? Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So what is the work of those who labor among you? What is the work of the, the elders, the pastors? 
Well, certainly part of that work is a public teaching of the Scriptures, but it also includes some private instruction. But again, I want to emphasize that in the second part, Paul addresses these words to brothers. In other words, he's giving these, these instructions to the entire church. And what does he say to the entire church? Admonish the idle, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak. That, beloved, is the work of ministry. It's not just wondering what's going on in their lives. It's getting involved in their lives. Again, I want to emphasize this, that Paul's admonishing the entire church body, the entire church family. So here's an important principle and vital principle for the church to function as the church. You don't have to have the title of pastor to pastor people. You don't have to have the title of pastor to pastor people. You are called to care for one another. One more passage I hope will firmly cement this for us. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. In verses 12 and 13, Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. Uh, the author of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now notice I, I, I missed an important word, brothers. That's the entire church. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, that's the church family, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. Who is to do the exhorting? Brothers, the entire church family, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Who is the author of Hebrews addressing? He's addressing the entire church body. He's addressing the entire church family. And what is his instruction to the entire church family? Every member of the body, every member of the church family is to exhort and to encourage one another and not just every once in a while but every day. Why? So that none of us are overtaken by sin and develop a hard heart which can lead to Falling away, drifting away. I'll say it again. You do not have to have the title of pastor to pastor God's people. We all are called to care and love for one another. So what does this look like practically? Well, let's just use the, the text here in Hebrews. When you see your brothers, and sit, let's look at this at a positive first. Because it's so easy for us to focus on the negative, isn't it? But how about this? How about when you see your brothers and sisters in Christ that are making progress and becoming like Christ? You know what we should do? We should encourage them. We should let them know that we are seeing them make progress. Uh, that helps build them up. That motivates them to keep going. Let's them know that all their effort hasn't been wasted need to encourage one another. And I admit, we have, to work, we have to work at doing this. But negatively, when we see a brother or sister in Christ who has begun to become lax, perhaps in attendance, 
Can I tell you this? this? is something I've learned over the years of ministry. If a person is lax in attendance at church, they are lax in their spiritual disciplines. They're probably not reading the Bible. They're probably not, they're probably not uh, spending any time in prayer. Okay? And that's how this shows up. You may see them engaging in activities that are harmful, spiritually harmful to them. And it could be simply because they are spiritually mature, and I don't mean that negatively, but they haven't grown enough to, to be able to understand that some things just aren't good for us to engage in as Christians. We're not being legalistic. We just understand that there's a lot of things in this world that just simply won't help us to grow spiritually. How about, let's take it to what Paul's addressing here. What if there's a disagreement between two members of the church? And let me say this. I know I've been preaching on this for quite a while, but there are, there are not two church members here who are in disagreement. I want you to know that, okay? There are not two church members here who are in disagreement. So don't be running through your Rolodex thinking, who's he talking about? Okay? Because we're, we're not experiencing that. But it's here in the scriptures, and i got to preach it. But let's say that you learn that there is a disagreement between two members of the church. What should you do? You should intervene in love and try and help solve the issue. Okay? Can I give you a little pastoral theology 101? The pastor normally is the last chump to know. Okay? And by the time it reaches the pastor, it's usually too late. I've told John, I've told Ben, do not keep secrets from me. Even if you think it may hurt me. But don't keep secrets from me. Let's not keep secrets from one another. You know... Most of you here have children. Some of you here have children. What would you do to protect your child? Have you ever had to have a difficult conversation with one of your children? Look at you guys. Sure, we all have. Now, why did we do that? Because we didn't like them? No, because we love them. I can tell you one conversation that my dad set me down and basically said, you're a knucklehead. And he was right. I was acting like a knucklehead. Why did he do that? Did he like to call me names? No. He loved me. He wanted what was best for me. And God wants what's best for his children. So therefore, let's care for one another. I honestly believe that, I've said this a dozen times, God put us here for a reason. And we're going to run into all kinds of people who have real problems. And my prayer is that dozens, if not hundreds of them, come to Christ. But guess what? You know what they bring with them? 
baggage, troubles, problems. And we can't pull a bait and switch on them. We can't get them in the door and say, oh, well, you're on your own now. Back to verse 3. Help these people. Be actively participating in their lives. We're going to have a cookout for the community. Would you please be a part of that? You're a part of the church family. Show them you care about them. Why? Well, the key, let me back up. How important is unity? Well, look at the language that Paul uses here. He uses that word entreat, and he uses it for both ladies. We've, we've seen what this word means. It means to beg, to implore. This is not some casual thing to Paul. He says, I'm begging you to help these two ladies. Why? Because unity is that important. Why? Because the key to spiritual victory is unity. Did you catch this in our church covenant? We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. Those aren't just words. That's what everyone who signed that committed to that. So the key to spiritual victory is unity. The key to spiritual victory is to be in one spirit with one mind in full accord and Again, as Paul says, and of one mind. God's glory demands that we function in unity. The Lord Jesus Christ deserves our obedience in applying and exercising the mind that is ours. Your brothers and sisters in Christ depend upon you to have the same mind and to be of one accord. And this neighborhood desperately needs the ministry and the service a unified church can bring to their lives. So let me take verse 2 and rephrase it just a little bit. I entreat Grace Community Church to agree in the Lord. 